You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here with Alfred Mealy, who is a professor at Florida State University and also the author of quite a few books on a wide range of philosophical topics. Most recently, you've written a bunch of books on free will, including this most recent book called Simply Free Will. Before that, there was another one called Free, Why Science Hasn't Disproved Free Will. You've got other books called Backsliding, that's right here, which is really about the weakness of will. You got another one called Irrationality, where you covered the weakness of will and self-deception. Got a book dedicated to self-deception called Self-Deception Unmasked, Aspects of Agency, Motivation, Agency, Effective Intentions. Really lots of books, one that of free will, one of self-control, and one of self-deception. So welcome, Alfred. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I think, you know, in the social sciences, people think that the issue of free will is important. Certainly in the world of jurisprudence, everybody thinks that the idea of free will is important because it's a justification for holding people accountable and so forth. But in the social sciences, right, they think that they can answer this question. I just got through speaking with someone about choice architecture, right, and the ways in which we can design environments to influence people's choices. And I've talked to a bunch of cognitive scientists who say we can trace various actions back to things that are going on in the brain, right? This is what neuroscientists are all about. There are some other experiments that we should talk about, but before we do that, maybe we should define free will. You spent most of the book getting at definitions, trying to come up with some conceptual clarity around this idea of free will. So to what extent does it depend on this notion of deep openness, which I found fascinating? So the book Free, the 2014 book, was on the science of free will. And the new book is mainly the philosophy, all but one chapter. One chapter is on free will and neuroscience. And yeah, question in the free will literature is, hey, what do we mean by free will anyway? And what I do is to give the readers two options. And all along, ever since I started writing about free will, I remained neutral on the question that most philosophers write about when they're writing about free will. And that is whether free will is compatible with what we call determinism. And in the book, I try to do a lot of this before I even use the term determinism, because the way non-specialists understand determinism it's just obvious that determinism precludes free will, whereas philosophers understand determinism differently. I think social scientists would think that way too, right? Like to the extent, if I can design a predictive algorithm where if you give me a complete description of the state of the world at time zero, including your mental state and so forth, Diderot made the same point, right? If you give me the, the description of the world at time zero and I can predict perfectly what time one is going to look like, then there's no such thing as free will. That's the inference that most people would make. And so as we get better and better at predicting people's behavior, as Facebook can predict with a high degree of accuracy what video you're going to click on, and the advertisers can predict with a high degree of accuracy what product you're going to buy, and the social scientists can predict based on the experimental setting what you're going to do as a behavior, then our faith in free will kind of <laughs> dwindles and disappears, right? That's a conventional notion of what free will is. That is not entirely clear, but let me start off on this one. Yeah, 
So we think of determinism pretty much the way you were describing it in the free will literature. We think this is what it is for determinism to be true of a universe, a complete list of the laws of nature and a complete description of the universe at any point in time would entail all other truths about the universe, all of them, and so including truths about everything anybody will ever do. That's how we understand determinism. Yeah, and if you want to picture it more vividly, maybe imagine a being with a brain the size of Neptune or something, and it knows all this stuff, and it just grinds out the entailments. And it's foolproof grinding out. Things could not turn out differently. One big group of philosophers who work on free will say, yep, and that's compatible with free will. And one way to think about it is, and why is it compatible? Because all that's really required for having free will, and maybe not even required, maybe this is more than what you need, is that you're sane and rational, you make reasonable decisions on the basis of good information in the absence of a lot of pressure from the outside. And that, they say, is good enough for free will. Now, some philosophers, of course, disagree. That actually turns out to be the majority view in philosophy, but it's not a huge majority. And some philosophers disagree. Now, lay folk, what do they think? We'll get to the disagreeing philosophers in a minute. We'll go back to the lay folk now. There is a relatively new branch of philosophy called experimental philosophy. Mm -hmm. And what you do in parts of this branch is you conduct surveys of non-specialists and see how they respond to very short stories. Like you might tell them a story about a guy who lives in a universe, which is such that a being with these superpowers could predict with absolute certainty what anybody would ever do. And he does something nasty to his wife and kids. And you could ask, did he do it of his own free will? And does he deserve to be blamed for it? And in some of these studies, the answer is ordinary folks are giving on average, come out in favor of the idea that mm -hmm. free will is compatible with determinism. Mm. Now, this is still ongoing, and we'll see how it turns out in the end. Okay, so now we get to the philosophers who disagree with these compatibilists. And what they claim is, no, if your universe is like that, you don't have free will, you need to be able to do otherwise in a deep sense. I call this deep openness. And the deep sense is this, or here's one way to picture it. Suppose that somebody decides at a certain time to steal my car, let's say. And if you could roll back time and then roll it forward again, there would be a scenario in which you get right up to the moment where he makes that bad decision and he decides otherwise. That would be deep openness. So it's different from being able to do otherwise if things had been a bit different, like if a policeman had been watching or your kids had been watching or whatever. It's different from that. It's being able to do otherwise under exactly the same conditions. And that's called deep openness. And for that to obtain, a determinism would have to be false. Now, I find that to be actually a puzzling story. I think that's why you have the roulette wheel on the cover of your book, because it's basically saying that there's some degree of randomness, right? In other words, that there's a some kind of randomizer going on and you replay history over and again this is you're replaying history not where there's different moods not where there's different information sets not where there's different circumstances or heart rates or anything like that everything's exactly the same and yet you get different outcomes than 
know, you need that for free will. But it seems to me like the whole point of building character, right, the whole effort to create character is an effort to eliminate that roulette wheel, right? Aren't we trying to bind our future selves by thinking carefully about the rules by which we live? And if we did that and we eliminated the roulette wheel, then that would work against this idea of deep openness. But that seems to be what we want. It reminds me of, I took a class with Stanley Fish like 25 years ago. He recounted this scene from the movie, The Wild Bunch. I don't know if you've ever used that movie in, as a text in your class. But there was a scene where the bad guys are being chased by the sheriff and one of their fellows is helping the sheriff to track them down. So the bad guys are looking through the binoculars and they see their former colleague working with the sheriff. And one of the guys says, oh, as soon as he gets a chance, he's going to escape and join us, Right. And the other guy says, no, no, that guy told the sheriff as a condition for his release that he would chase us down, so he's going to chase us down. And so the question that we came up in class was, is freedom adherence to your character, to authenticity, to be who you are, or is it to adhere to your word or adhere to your promise? So is it being true to yourself or true to your word, which one constitutes kind of true freedom? For a lot of people, they would say that being true to your word is what it means to be free living under shackles that you yourself have created as opposed to ones that kind of bubble up on the roulette wheel. So how is life via roulette wheel kind of a paradigmatic example of free will? It seems paradoxical. That's something I talk about in the book. I should say this as background. So one thing I try to do in the book is to present the pros and cons of each of these two ways of thinking about free will. Both have difficulties and both have things to recommend them. And the roulette wheel shows up on the cover of the book because it represents a problem that the deep openness people face. So they think that determinism needs to be false in order for us to have free will. And especially important to them is that at the moment of decision-making, when you finally make the decision, you could have decided differently, everything being the, the same up until then. And I gave you the rollback way of picturing it. But another way I do it is I say, yeah, so imagine that you're thinking about what to do, like to steal my car or not. And once you start thinking about it, this little neural roulette wheel starts spinning in your head, and a little neural ball drops onto the wheel. And different segments of the wheel represent different decision outcomes. And some other outcomes, too, like you keep thinking about what to do. And the ball bounces and bounces, and it lands somewhere, and it's landing there is your deciding to steal the car, say. It looks like that's the kind of thing that philosophers of this stripe require, and it mm -hmm. looks worrisome because we, we might look too random. So what do I say about that? If we just take a snapshot of the guy and we're not thinking about how the preferences and values and so on that set the antecedent probabilities of a decision mm -hmm. come to be, we might see him as a kind of victim of things beyond his control. Mm -hmm. But I say the way to look at it is, you know, your character shaping kind of way that you mentioned. And we just trace back and back. And eventually we come to what might be the first allegedly free decision a person makes. And if it's mm -hmm. the real world that we're talking about, it's going to be a kid. And it'll be maybe five or four or six years old. I don't argue about that. We don't know for sure. So can a kid decide freely? One thing I suggest is, well, you know, it's just a kid. He's doing kid stuff. 
nothing really serious, nothing really great in ordinary cases. So maybe the bar for, and I start with moral responsibility, for moral responsibility for the decision is pretty low because it's kid stuff. And if we think, well, you're not morally responsible for doing a thing, where being morally responsible means deserving some blame or some credit from a moral point of view. So, and so imagine that the kid can get over this low bar. And kids have other problems that I think are way more serious than this bit of randomness, like impulse control in a four or five-year-old, or anticipating the effects, the consequences of one's behavior, planning. Young kids have a hard time with all that. So just mix a little randomness into the picture. Doesn't seem like a big deal. And then over time, the kids can learn from their mistakes and their successes. They can reflect on them, make better decisions or make worse ones. So that by the time they get to the point where they can be thinking about stealing my car, they've had a lot of influence over the antecedent probabilities at that time of the decision that's about to be made. So that's the way I go with that view. Oh, yeah. And so you might think, well, then they're rendering themselves unfree. And maybe that's okay. But maybe another way to think about it is there's this derivative kind of freedom. So they had this deep openness kind of freedom. And now they have the freedom to act in accordance with their character. So when Martin Luther says, here I stand, I can no other, he can't choose, right? He's got to do this thing, right? He's compelled to do, because obviously most people would say that if you're compelled, then there's no free will. So what does it mean to be compelled? I think most people would say if you have a gun pointed against your head, you're compelled, but they do give you a choice, like your money or your life. You can pick one or the other. So when does compulsion simply become failure of will or a failure to overcome impulse? That's a good, important question, too. The Martin Luther case comes up quite a bit in the free will literature. I think it was Dennett who introduced it into the literature in his 1984 book, Elbow Room. And what Dennett was trying to do was to falsify the idea that you do a thing freely only if you could have done otherwise because he was thinking, well, Luther freely nailed the edict to the door, and he couldn't have done otherwise, or so he said. Now, the deep openness philosophers can say, yeah, Luther did freely nail the edict to the door, even though he couldn't have done otherwise. But that action wouldn't have been free unless it had a history that included these deep openness kinds of decisions, and his character was a product partly of such decisions. So in other words, he made decisions earlier in his life, which brought him to that place where he could know other. That's right. That's the idea. And they would say, if not, if it were just a deterministic series from beginning to end, then he wouldn't be free. Yeah, so you can think of that as indirect freedom or derivative freedom. So now your question about compulsion. Yeah, so one way to think about it is if you can't do otherwise, but you don't endorse this mental state that makes it the case that you can't do otherwise, then you're compelled. So you could think of, let's say, an addict of a certain kind who has irresistible desires to do things and doesn't like being that kind of person or having those desires. That would seem to be a straightforward case of compulsion. The gun to your head thing people disagree about, that's such a dramatic case. But imagine a bank teller and there is a gun to his head, but he's a very thoughtful bank teller, and he's not thinking just about himself. He's thinking, hey, if I don't hand over this money, 
this guy is going to kill everybody in the bank. Mm-hmm. So the thing to do is to hand it over. And you might think he's sort of like Luther. He's freely handing it over. And he doesn't deserve any blame for handing it over. And maybe he deserves some credit because he does the sensible thing. Some people will count that as a free action and some won't. And I don't say much about that one in the book. Some problems are just too hard. Let's get back to this idea of self-control, because this is something that you have written quite a bit about. And I think there was the example in, I guess it was irrationality of the, the guy who's sitting at his lazy boy, I guess, the way I remember it. And he knows he's not supposed to eat anything after dinner, but he just gets up and goes to the fridge and says, I shouldn't eat this, but I'm going to eat it anyway. And Socrates would have difficulty accepting the notion that this guy decided to do something and acted contrary to his best judgment. He would say this whole idea of, of akrasia is, it doesn't make any sense. And there are other philosophers that have made the same point, right? Like Hare. What is the philosophical problem here? I tend to be very sympathetic to Socrates. If I see someone do something, I say, you must have wanted that, right? I guess economists think this way, right? If you really ate that cake, then you, know, you must have really wanted to eat that cake. It doesn't make sense for you to say, I didn't want to eat it, but I ate it anyway. An economist would struggle to make sense of the inconsistency there. Well, this is what the inconsistency is supposed to be. So these cases of acrasia are supposed to be cases in which you judge it best, all things considered, not to do a thing, like eat the cake, but you go ahead and eat it anyway. Or you judge it best to do a certain thing, like schedule a dental appointment or whatever, but you don't do it. And what Socrates thought is what you want most to do must line up with what you judge it best to do. And then people who think, no, this weak-willed kind of behavior is possible, think what you judge it best to do can come apart from what you want most to do. And I'm on that side of things. I'm not with Socrates. So one way I think about it is there are desires that you have, and they have different features. They have a causal power, which is a power to cause a corresponding action. And then they have your ranking of it in terms of value or goodness or whatever. And so somebody might have a desire for a snack and judge it best not to eat the snack. And he gives the the not eating the snack a higher ranking than eating it. Mm -hmm. He's thinking it's better on the whole because long term it's going to be good for me. So he gives it a higher ranking, but the causal power is reversed. And so what's he going to do? Well, he's going to act on the stronger desire, even though he believes that he shouldn't, even though he gives it a lower ranking. Mm -hmm. And so I try to explain how that can happen. There was a time when the Socratic view had more grip on people because, uh, philosophers anyway, because they were thinking of these better judgments as really tightly tied to desire strength. But Mm -hmm. uh, these days, that view is just not very popular. I don't think I could even get people to read my book on weakness of will anymore. They think it's all settled. But it would be settled in my direction. Not that I settled it, but that's the way it goes. And I think we could do, or they are doing now, experimental philosophy studies on this. I actually did some simple ones myself back when I wrote Backsliding. And people will say, all the time, I think I should be studying. It's the best thing to do, all things considered. But I'm playing video games. Well, to get back to the scientific side of things, you pointed out that when people 
believe in free will, right? They have a more philosophical approach to free will that is less on the deterministic side of things. They behave differently. And presumably also people who have certain views around self-control would behave differently. In the business literature, Carol Dweck has this change mindset versus fixed mindset, right? And so there's a feedback loop between how you understand the world and how you behave. These are not simply philosophical issues that have no impact on the world. There's evidence that your inherent philosophical view impacts how you behave, right? For sure. So there's evidence that lowering people's confidence and free will increases misbehavior. This comes from social psychology. There are a lot of worries now about replication studies, but mm -hmm. sometimes attempted replications of these studies I'm about to describe work, they're successful, and sometimes not. And it's hard to understand why they sometimes work and sometimes don't. Here's one done by Kathleen Voss and Jonathan Schooler. So what they do is they give people a math quiz. The subjects get a math quiz. And some have been primed with the belief that there's no free will. That is, they've been given passages suggesting that there's no free will. And some get pro-free will passages, and some get neutral passages. Then they're going to take this math quiz, and they can cheat just by not pressing the space bar. If they don't press the space bar, the answer is going to show up on the screen and they can cheat. And in one version of this, they also get a buck for every correct answer. So by cheating, they're stealing. And what they discovered is that the people given the no free will prompts cheated significantly. And the people given the pro free will prompt and the neutral prompt behaved about the same. Well, that's some evidence. Roy Baumeister did a follow-up study and in this one, the subject's task was to serve snacks to people who were about to walk into the room. And they were told two things about these people. Uh, they all really hate spicy food, and they have to eat everything you put on their plate. And the people given the no free will prompts doled out way more of the spicy salsa option than the other people did. So they were behaving aggressively. And apparently, maybe their confidence in free will was lowered. That's what the design was supposed to be. So then you might wonder what's going on there. And maybe in a way, this is to simplify it, they're thinking, well, no free will, you can't blame me. And they've got this aggressive urge anyway. And so they just act on it. And the other folks might have had the aggressive urge too and not acted on it. So there's that. There's also evidence that belief in free will is correlated with higher salaries, better school performance, and so on. Now, the problem of self-deception and the problem of self-control, they seem related in some way because in order for someone to engage in self-deception, one would think it's almost like you need multiple selves where one self is deciding to deceive the other self or whether it's the present self deceiving the future self or whether it's an executive self deceiving an autopilot self. You, you didn't discuss the idea of multiple selves in either of those discussions, but that's somebody who studies kind of organizational decision-making. The way I kind of make sense of these irrationalities is to think of individuals as committees, right? And the committees are making all sorts of decisions and they're cycling and they're doing all sorts of weird stuff. Is the problem of self-deception similar to the problem of self-control? Socrates also had a bit of a problem with this notion of self-deception. There is a connection between self-deception and weakness of will, and so between self-deception and self-control too, because weakness of will and self-control are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So in cases of weakness of will, 
you judge it better to A than to B, but you do B instead of A because you're more strongly motivated to do that. So it's a kind of motivated irrationality. And it looks like self-deception involves motivated irrationality too. The evidence that you possess favors P over not P, but normally in self-deception cases, you'd like P to be true. And that motivation, that liking, seems to have an effect on how you process data. And so you come to the belief that not P. So yeah, I think there definitely is that connection. There are divided mind views of self-deception. And I've always avoided them and gone a different route. And the route is an empirically supported kind of route. It isn't making things up philosophically. So what I do is to look at the different biases that we know about and then explain how they can contribute to self-deception owing to motivational influence. So there's the confirmation bias, for example. Mm -hmm. So people who are testing a hypothesis are more likely to notice supporting data than disconfirming data. There's the availability heuristic, the data that's relatively available, has a bigger impact on belief formation than data that isn't, and so on and so on. And so now, if you want something to be true, your hypothesis might be, hey, that's true. And then the confirmation bias kicks in, and evidence in favor of the truth of that proposition becomes more salient. The availability heuristic kicks in, and data supportive of P, what you'd like to be true, is more salient and so on. So it's a sort of down-to-earth, non-exotic view of self-deception I have. When I proposed it, I mean, I started doing this before that 2001 book on self-deception, and it was deemed to be a radical view. But over time, it started being called the standard view or the dominant view which is it's nice for a philosopher to see. But once your view is called that, that means people attack it because what philosophers do is attack. They don't usually build on other people's work. So in my spare time, sometimes I respond to attacks. When I read pretty much every book, I try to view it as a self-help book, and some authors are insulted by that. But I think in all of these books, there are, at least I found within them, some insights into how to live a better life. Maybe it's okay for philosophers today to avoid thinking about how to live. It's pretty hard to avoid that completely. And we live in an age of distraction. Right? We live in an age subject to all sorts of pressures to behave in this way or that way by actors, whether nefarious or well-meaning. Samuel Johnson, when he kicked the stone, he said, I refute determinism thus. And I think about the underground man and the underground man and Dostoevsky's famous story would just whatever spit at the crystal palace or whatever, just to demonstrate his control over his actions. If we want to have a disposition that is less inclined towards self-deception or less inclined towards uh, accuracy or weakness of will to kind of own our, our free will, design our roulette wheel, so to speak, you know, what kinds of things can we do? Do we have to start by accepting certain philosophical propositions? Do we need to hone our better judgment? In other words, how do we, just to take the weakness of will issue, how do we get better at translating our better judgment into action that is consistent with our better judgment? That's an important issue. I'll tell you what I do. I mean, I do try to live a rational life. And I'm so old now and have been doing it for so long, that's not hard. But back in the day, I would ask myself when I was tempted to do something I thought I shouldn't do, like, I don't know, drink a third beer or whatever, I would just remind myself 
that things can go badly. And that would make a difference. And about self-deception, yeah, I would force myself to try to take an objective view of the evidence. So, you know, I might have wanted it to be true that so-and-so was doing such-and-such because it was a family member or whatever. But I would think, no, I have to think about this just the way I think about people who aren't family members. I think that kind of thing can help. It can help you behave more rationally. And then if you think rationality contributes to positive welfare, you've got the connection there. It's hard to deny that it does. And that's a way of taking control over what you do and also what you believe. But is that more like physical fitness? Is it whatever character fitness? Is it about exercising a particular type of mental muscle to become better and better at resisting self-deception, resisting weakness of will? Is it more a practice or is it more a philosophical endeavor? Is it about acknowledging and accepting certain propositions or is it more about exercising a series of actions? I think the latter. It's more a matter of behavior, but behavior informed by thoughts about why people act in weak-willed ways, why they deceive themselves, and so on. And if you understand why these things happen, you have a better chance of not doing them yourself, or at least diminishing your doing of them. You've spent a lot of time studying the social scientists and the neuroscientists. Do they spend enough time studying philosophy? It's rare that you read a neuroscience book where they extensively analyze the different philosophical propositions, but you can find philosophical works where they analyze the neuroscientific propositions. Do we need to see more movement backflow from philosophy to experimental social science to social psychology and to neuroscience? Yeah, I think we need more. But what's happening already, like that neurophilosophy of free will project that I talked about. We have philosophers co-authoring papers with neuroscientists and, you know, it's affecting the neuroscience or my different grant projects. They're the same. You've got social psychologists like Roy Baumeister, who is writing a book on free will now, and he's been highly influenced by philosophy over the last few years. He was part of both of my projects and the young and older neuroscientists in our group are taking philosophy very seriously. But yeah, it's going to be not exactly symmetrical, the influence. And partly because there's just a lot more money in neuroscience than in philosophy. And the big payoff is for really good experimental results. So what I'm thinking, though, is that the conceptual clarity will make those results better. Now, I also wanted to ask you about moral responsibility. And it sits in the background of your books on free will. You don't address it in any kind of detail, but... Of course, it seems like a prerequisite for moral responsibility, some degree of free will. Whether we're talking about legal conceptions or even folk conceptions of blame, we need to think that the actor had the ability to behave in a different way. But as we learn more and more about neuroscience, legal philosophers are starting to rethink the boundary of responsibility, right? So if we can show that, oh yeah, this person has a tumor in their brain or this person had a terrible childhood and we know that if people have a terrible childhood and they have tumors on the brain, they're more likely to do this. And we were kind of at a fork in the road where we're either going to restrict the scope of responsibility because we have better causal models or you know, maybe we move in kind of the Greek direction where we say, it doesn't matter whether you had the choice or not, you still got to pay the price. You're liable just because, you know, it's your fate, tough luck. How are legal theorists responding to the debate 
over free will. And how would you think about responsibility based on your conception of free will? Okay, good. Yeah, in the legal domain, I mean, you have people on both sides of the issue. There are people who argue that neuroscience isn't really telling us anything useful for the courtroom and people who are arguing, like Green and Cohen, that neuroscience is going to change everything. And, you know, it turns out that some of the legal scholars, the pro-free will guys, are just regular old compatibilists. They've been heavily influenced by certain philosophers. Certain kinds of brain damage that incapacitate people in certain ways should get them off the hook. But just people with normal brains probably have normal uh, moral responsibility. What do I think about moral responsibility? One of my books really is mainly about moral responsibility. It's manipulated agents. And it's mainly about these thought experiments featuring manipulation of people and figuring out what effect that has on their moral responsibility. So it is probably the least empirically informed book of mine. It's like the Mary Harry prank? Not even that, but that is an interesting one. Maybe I should talk about the Mary Harry thing. So I said that in the book, Free Will and Opinion Guide, the new book, I try to bring out the pros and cons for both of the competing philosophical views. And this prank that you were talking about is supposed to indicate that you can do something freely and be morally responsible for doing it, even if you couldn't have done otherwise. So people who don't like fanciful stories won't like this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. It's a fun story. And this kind of story is called a Frankfurt-style story. By the way, you got a lot of these stories. you got philosophers getting locked in hotel rooms. you got a lot of crazy stories in here. Yeah, the stories are fun. I like them. This story traces back to a paper by Harry Frankfurt that was published in 1969. So he deserves the credit for the inspiration of the story. So here's the idea. This guy, Harry, can read people's minds and tell what they're about to decide. And he's also got a special power. If he sees that they're not going to decide what he wants them to decide, he can make them decide that way. But he prefers not to intervene if he doesn't need to. He's watching Mary, and Mary is thinking about doing a certain thing. And he sees that she's going to decide on her own to do it, and that she's going to decide that at noon. So he lets her do it. Could Mary have done otherwise than decide at that time to do that thing? No, because either she's going to decide it on her own or Harry's going to make her decide it. So either way, she decides to do it. So might she decide it freely and be morally responsible for doing it? So let's make it, I guess this wasn't probably Mary in the book, but that's okay. So let's make it play a prank on me. And the prank would be, she would find my keys. Sometimes I leave them in my office. She would find my keys in my office and move my car to a, another parking lot and then put the keys back. And then the idea would be, then I'd go out at the end of the day, I'd look for my car, it'd be gone. I'd call the police, they'd come, and I'd do all this paperwork and stuff. And suppose I found out that Harry was prepared to make Mary decide to do this if she didn't decide it on her own. Would I let her off the hook? No, I'd still be mad as hell, right? She made me go through all that trouble about my car. So even though nothing that she did made the world any different than it would have been had she not done what she did, if she had decided no matter what she did, this was going to be the outcome. Because either way, she's going to decide to steal it, either on her own or because Harry makes her do it. So yeah, it looks like 
I, I would blame her anyway, or if it were your car, you would. And why is that? Because even though she couldn't have made a different decision, the decision she made on her own, she wasn't forced into it. And that, yeah, that is a problem for the deep openness, guys. So that would be a question where the constraint or the compulsion was not binding, right? Because it didn't affect her action in any way. Yeah. So I think what we would say is that's the only thing she could do, but she wasn't compelled to do it. So the decision itself was uncompelled, but it was uh, inevitable. And that's what Frankfurt was after. Not compelled, not forced, but inevitable. And so if you think determinism makes things inevitable, you might also think, yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're forced. Yeah, that's what Frankfurt was right. up to. That was a very clever paper. We think of people as making decisions in the moment based on some calculus, right? They're evaluating different goals, different ends, but there's also this impulse part, right? And the impulses are viewed independently from, or the strength of the impulses are different from the evaluative judgments. And that accounts for the discrepancy between why people might say, have one objective and pursue a different one. I mean, economists have trouble with this. We've come up with all sorts of behavioral economics ways of dealing with this. Someone can both want a cigarette and not want to be a smoker at the same time. Mm -hmm. And those seem to be logically inconsistent. But in terms of how someone behaves, they're going to smoke, right? In many cases. Yeah. Behavior is in general driven by the stronger desire. But the stronger desire isn't always in line with what you think is best. Oh, you know, about smoking. I used to be a smoker. And one time I was at a conference in London. It was like a free will, self-control kind of conference. And somebody in the audience saw me smoking before the talk. And she said, I wrote this book. And if you promise to read it, I'll give it to you for free. And I'll autograph it. And it was a book on how to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. So she gave me the book and I read it. It was a pretty long book. And there were facts and data and stuff. But this one message kept being repeated. And it was, if you have the urge to smoke, you tell yourself, okay, I can smoke or I can wait and smoke later. And for me, what was standing in the way of my quitting smoking was the thought that if I decided never to smoke again, I would never smoke again. And I just didn't want to cut myself off from that possibility. So it was coming up to a time when I needed to have a knee replacement surgery. And I had to promise to quit smoking in order to have the surgery because nicotine interferes with healing of bones. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll taper off and then I'll quit. And the tapering off happened because every time I had an urge to smoke, I would just say, hey, I, I can smoke later. And the urge would pass. Mm. And I smoked maybe two or three cigarettes a day. And then I just quit. And I've never had a cigarette since. It's been over three years. And I don't even have urges to have them. And I thought, that is a really clever self-control technique. George Ainsley recommended the opposite approach, right, which was you need to convince yourself that if you smoke now, you'll be smoking forever. And the only way to stop smoking forever is to stop smoking now. So he uses self-deception to overcome lack of self-control, which I thought was clever. Yeah, his view is a clever view. And it's a really interesting view. It wouldn't have worked for me, and this one mm -hmm. did. And then I know, oh, I wish I could remember her name. There's a uh, a psychologist who uses this kind of strategy for all kinds of self-control situations like overeating or eating extra dessert or whatever. And you just tell yourself, yeah, I can have that second cookie or 
maybe tomorrow instead. And it just makes it so much easier to do what you think you should do. Well, Alfred, you've written quite a few books, and uh, I'm really glad that you have written ones that are more accessible to the general public, including these two on free will. And I look forward to your next domain you're going to tackle. What, what's that going to be? What's your next project? I'm not sure. I'm thinking about what it should be. I've got some different options. I think I might want to do something just purely philosophical on what it is to act intentionally as mm-hmm. opposed to accidentally or owing too much to luck. But I'm not sure. I have to think about it. Well, thanks so much. Hope to chat again soon. Don't forget Free Will, old classic self-deception unmasked irrationality, which has a lot of the germs of later books in it, including this one, Backsliding. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.